talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is driving the board. Ty Cats need a change in momentum. And it starts this weekend at Tim Hortons Field. See you there, Oski Wee Wee. Here's Scott Oh my oh, Scott Thompson! <laughs> ah. Ah. I think Junior blew a blew a right front there. <laughs> Into the weeds. Uh, end over end he goes. Uh, good afternoon. It is 309. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Willerskin on the board. Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks in the newsroom. Feel free to jump into the fun. Uh, I think there were some listeners out there that would bet, uh, were laying down bets. There was a pool uh, going on as to when that might happen to uh, young Kurt. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, you know, God bless him. He said, no, let's run it. I think it's great. So uh, there you go. <sighs> A momentous <laughs> day. <laughs> I think it's the second time it's happened. Uh, but I, I, I think the first one squeaked by and not too many people noticed. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, he came through the door just as the show was starting. I said, you want to do it live? No, run that one. It's great. Uh, so there you go. It is Hamilton today, uh, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, jump into the fun. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. I'm uh, going to end up the show with Scott Radley, the Thai Cats, and Ted called it, man. Ted called it the last on Friday. He's, eh, I don't know. I don't think the Thai Cats are going to get it. See? Uh, everybody <laughs> scoffed. Everybody scoffed. No, we just thought you were being the realist, Ted. We were just being fans. We were being see, hopeful fans. See, That's this, what it was. You know, people need to understand that I'm leaving here, and, you know, people need to pay attention to what I'm saying. I do know my stuff sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's the one-handed yeah. applause right yeah. there. Yeah. So what? Uh, so let's talk about this. Do you think, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, are we just all assuming that the Ticats uh, are going to be there at the end as we host the Grey Cup? But what do you think the chances are here? Well, they have to get uh, past the Saskatchewan Rough Riders first uh, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, if, if, if Hamilton wins, then it doesn't matter Then they get second place. However, Friday night, Montreal, which is tied with Hamilton, plays Ottawa. So if Montreal Montreal wins Friday, and the Tiger Cats lose Saturday, then the Tiger Cats have to play in Montreal on the road in a playoff game. And then if they win that one, then they got to go to Toronto. So, uh, Typical road. All uh, right, going to be interesting game, and we talked about this last week. Uh, it makes uh, this Saturday's game all the more interesting. And my boy and I are going, so we're looking forward to that. The COP26 has uh, wound up, and obviously, you know, the big chatter when it, when it comes to pollution, coal, getting rid of how do we reduce coal, uh, China and the United States coming to some sort of agreement, hopefully, uh, to reduce that or at least look at it. Um, but we've also heard a lot about the agriculture industry and and specifically cattle and, and methane and such. And Canada has pledged to reduce methane emissions over the years. Uh, we've heard a lot about cows being responsible for a certain amount of the problem that we have. Uh, how do we do this? How much, how significant is agriculture uh, to climate change? Let's bring in Dr. Claudia Wagner Riddle, professor and research leadership chair with the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
So, Doctor, how significant, how much does uh, the agriculture industry contribute to uh, climate change? Because we certainly hear a lot about fossil fuels, and that's the major contributor and such. Uh, What about the agriculture industry? Where does it fit in here? So in Canada, uh, agriculture is responsible for about 10% of our overall greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, when we go to the global level, that number is more like 12 to 14%. If we bring in uh, emissions that are uh, indirectly caused by agriculture, such as uh, those related to deforestation or land use change, that number goes up to about 25%. So it is not an insignificant amount. Um, uh, and, and so we, sh- we should consider it, uh, but it also doesn't mean that that's going to solve all of our problems. So how does agriculture, uh, uh, what, what can it do? Because um, obviously there's a certain amount of the industry that generates this, but this is methane coming from the animals, is it not, that we're talking about here? And how much of that is a concern? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about uh, a, a, approximately just over half of the 10% is due to uh, what we call enteric fermentation. So the cows have this big, uh, basically, rumen, right? It's, a, uh, it's where all the decomposition of grass that they eat mm. uh, takes place. Um, and while they're doing the chewing and burping up the cud, which we people know about, right? Uh, yeah. And, well, they have a very complex digestive system, right? right. Yeah. And when they're doing that, uh, some methane escapes. So it is an inefficiency in the process and better uh, management of feed and so on can reduce that. But it, it cannot make it zero because that's basically uh, making you know, not, not, uh, it's not a cow anymore. It's impossible. Yeah. So So how, so what can you do to address this? You talked about feed issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, How much can that help? And and is that really the only thing you can do really is just alter their diets? Right. So that's half of the mission. The other half is, is the growing of the crops that either feed the animals and or people, right? Uh, so in terms of uh, the, the enteric fermentation part, it, it is really related to uh, the feed component. Uh, then we have a part that's not um, about 20% that's related to manure emissions. Uh, so once the, the excreta leaves the animal and gets stored in tanks, before application to the field. So there are a lot of uh, technological advances there in terms of anaerobic digestion, composting can, that can decrease those emissions. And then when we get to the field part, uh, we can do things that can actually take up carbon to potentially offset some of those emissions from the animals, right? So it pastures store a lot of carbon, um, Things like cover crops that more and more farmers are doing now. It's all about putting some carbon in the soil and keeping it there for a long period of time. 
So is the main culprit here cattle? Are there other animals who contribute the same way, or is it mostly the cattle industry? It's mostly cattle because of their uh, ruminant, like because of the the type of digestion they have. Yeah. And and also because of their size, right? So then goats and sheep, they also uh, produce a lot of methane, but... um, per uh, kilogram of meat or milk, they're less, um, they have a, a lower carbon footprint. So what is, what, what are farmers or what is the industry to take from this moving forward? Uh, obviously it's a feed issue as well. Uh, mm. What, what can farmers do? I mean, we've all, we're, we're all trying to help cut back, what have you. Uh, what can the, what can the agriculture industry do? Right. So um, they can, uh, there are some, so as I said, the the feed management, so all the efficiencies in the system, because basically, uh, if you're keeping animals around that are not productive, uh, those Mm -hmm. contribute to methane and don't contribute to the production side, right? Uh, Right. So optimizing uh, the, the, the production efficiency, uh, managing manure in a way that doesn't lead to big emissions. And then in the field part, uh, it, it has to do, as I mentioned, um, like uh, growing um, cover crops, being uh, having a diverse uh, rotation, including perennials in the lot- rotation because perennials are very good. So that's mm. kind of like hay and alfalfa, which some right. farmers obviously already do. Uh, so there, there are definitely um, efficiencies in the SIFT system in terms of also um, fertilizer use. Uh, and, and that will be helpful for the industry. And in fact, the industry has already made improvements over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, you were talking about manure and, and manure storage and such. Is, is there any any of this that can re, be recaptured? Because we know, you know, in, in waste facilities that the, mm-hmm. the gas comes off of that. Is is there any is down the road? Is there any way we can we can recoup some of this? We can we can harness some of this. Yes. Yeah, so uh, there are a, a number of farms in Ontario uh, that have anaerobic digesters uh, that feed into the grid. Uh, so they are basically uh, using the manure and also taking uh, food waste that is diverted from landfills to produce electricity based on methane. Now, all, all of those take a lot of capital investment. So it's difficult mm. for farmers to do that on their own, right? They need either like some incentive program yeah. to do that. Uh, so there are definitely ways. It's not... Uh, one of the issues with agriculture is that we have many sources in different sort of places of the the food supply chain. And um, uh, so it's not sort of the silver bullet, right? Like yeah, if you do right. this, it's going to solve everything. Like, like all of this, when you think about it, Claudia, yes. it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a multifaceted issue. Uh, Dr. Claudia Wagner Riddle with her professor, uh, with us, professor and research leadership chair with the School of Environmental Sciences, University of Guelph, talking about the agriculture, uh, uh agriculture industry and what they can do to reduce methane emissions. Doctor, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. 
Thanks for having me. Here's an issue we've been discussing for a very long time, and that is to ban or not to ban Huawei's 5G technology from being the backbone of Canada's infrastructure for 5G. Uh, I think we're the only one that, that hasn't really within the five eyes that, that has not already done this. Uh, many said, many thought that uh, obviously uh, once the Huawei CFO was uh, detained uh, on an extra, uh, extradition warrant and the two Michaels were uh, snagged off the street, that uh, obviously this couldn't move forward. Well, now, uh, as soon as uh, the Huawei CFO was on the plane, oddly enough, so are the two Michaels. So they've been home for quite a while, yet we've heard, um, oddly, nothing much from them or the Huawei decision. Let's bring in David Welch, uh, David Welch, professor of political science, university research chair at the University of Waterloo's Balsili School of International Affairs. And with us now, David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good to be with you, Scott. Many thought that once the two Michaels were free, this would move on. How come that hasn't happened, David? Can you hear me, David? David, can you, you David, can you hear me? You cut out for a moment there. I'm sorry. I'm I'm driving through a bit of a dead zone. Okay, I'll I'll say this again. Uh, many thought that uh, once the two Michaels were set free, that uh, that would be it for the Huawei decision, and, and it would be made. Uh, how come with the two Michaels now back home here on Canadian soil that we still haven't answered this question? I don't think there's really much of a delay. I think it was always going to come after the two Michaels came home. Uh, my understanding is that the government wants to make the announcement while Parliament is in session, probably um, couched in terms of a larger discussion on priorities uh, that has not necessarily been finalized yet. So uh, I think analysts are generally agreed on what the decision will be, and it's a matter of time uh, until it's rolled out. But at the end of the day, at this point, frankly, the decision is almost moot. Canada's wireless carriers have pretty much gone ahead and made their plans on 5G without Huawei in the picture. If it is moot, then why not just make the call? As I say, it's probably going to be packaged as part of a larger set of um, policy decisions. And that's tactical, I would suspect, in order to prevent it from looking like it's uh, you know one-off major announcement that Canadian government has no interest in rubbing China's face in this decision. So even mm-hmm. though everybody has a good sense of what it will be, I think the idea is not to try to um, make it obvious that it's a slap in the face of China. The fact that this decision has taken so long, is that not drawing more attention to the obvious? Uh, it is, and of course our allies have been tapping the table and wondering what's keeping us. Uh, I think Probably there have been behind-the-scenes assurances to our allies that the decision is coming, and we probably telegraphed what the decision is. Uh, I'd be surprised if that weren't the case. I haven't heard, uh, as a hard matter of fact, that it is the case, but certainly if the government were smart, they would have been doing that. So I don't think it'll surprise anybody, neither our allies nor the Chinese. Uh, And that takes a little bit of the urgency out of it. Uh, it, it appears that Canada is playing both sides of the fence. Are they here, or are they trying to make this part of a bigger deal? Well, I'd be surprised if we were playing both sides of the bat. Uh, it's hard to know how to thread the needle on this one without annoying both sides uh, in a way that doesn't justify any possible payoff on either side. So uh, 
if the, if the decision were anything short of no Huawei gear in 5G, I would be stunned. If the decision includes uh, an agreement, that we're willingness to tolerate Huawei gear in 3G and 4G legacy networks, uh, it's possible the government may toss that bone to some of our smaller wireless carriers who'd be on the hook for significant infrastructure reinvestment costs otherwise, and that is certainly less of a security threat than the 5G rollout would be. Uh, what about but, what about the fallout from China? How are they going to react to this? Well, as I say, they are not going to be surprised. They will not be happy, but they've probably already normalized for that unhappiness. Uh, the Chinese are big on symbolic uh, gestures to register unhappiness, so it would be very odd if they did absolutely nothing. But then the Olympics are coming up, and you know, the Chinese famously never want to rock a boat before they host an Olympics. So they certainly wouldn't want to do anything as, as terribly egregious that would prompt Canada, for example, to pull out of the Winter Olympics. Uh, do you think there is going to be any issue around Beijing? Uh, is there something, is there a red flag that, that we could see pop up at the last minute here? Well, there's always been a percolating concern, not about Huawei, but in particular about China's treatment of uh, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang and also its treatment of Hong Kong. Yeah. And there has been some pressure behind the scenes for Canada not to participate at all for uh, you know, fear of dignifying what China's been doing domestically in, in its human rights abuses. Uh, that said, the government pretty clearly decided to uh, go ahead, all other things being equal, and if other things aren't equal, that would probably in the, be in the COVID department. So I think we'll be, have to keep an eye on uh, the Chinese COVID situation and see whether or not it's actually going to be safe to send our athletes there. Hmm. Um, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on the two Michaels and their release. Obviously, this, this story captivated all Canadians, and then they're back. Poof, we haven't heard anything from them. Are you surprised we haven't heard more from them to, at this point? I think they probably want to uh, get their feet back in Canada, reconnect with family and friends. They probably uh, don't want a lot of attention right now, and I would be very sympathetic with that point of view. They may have been asked by our government not to speak out too loudly uh, so as not to complicate relations with China too much. And uh, they may have been asked explicitly not to speak out too much before announcement on the Huawei decision. Uh, but at some point, I would expect both of them to speak up and have something to say. And um, it's not the kind of thing that you can just let go entirely. It's, in the modern day, it's not all right for countries to uh, pursue hostage diplomacy. And, you know, we have Dave, to send a very strong signal. David Welch has been with us, professor of political science, university research chair at the University of Waterloo. David, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome. Catch up on the news and information you've missed. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Will Erskine is with us. Ted Michaels and Diana Weeks joining us from the newsroom around the Big Round Table to discuss the issues of the day and what has been happening. Good afternoon, Big Round Table. Hope you're doing well. Well, you know, it's a Monday, so... <laughs> you get... I'm hearing you. And there's Grapple. Yeah. So 
I, I wanted to ask this question because we were just talking about this, and I didn't put it on your notes there, so sorry because I'm I'm I'm, I'm uh, sort of side I'm sort of t-boning you here, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but we were just talking about uh, Huawei and and you know the whole stuff with the Huawei CFO and the two Michaels and such. Uh, are you surprised that now that the Michaels and I mean the story captured uh, Canadians' hearts for over a thousand days, and then finally, uh, as we know, they have been returned uh, when the Huawei CFO. Uh, got on her plane. Uh, it was pretty much simultaneous. Are you surprised we haven't heard more from them at this point, Ted? Um, no, I'm. Not, I'm. You know, f- I thought we'd hear more. Maybe this isn't as big of a story as I don't know. I just don't. I. I it didn't really jump out at me as hearing something or not hearing something. So it's you know I, we're kind of I think moved on when t- talked about other stuff really. So I don't know. It was interesting because I was just talking to a prof about this, and and he he thought that uh, obviously they still need some time to decompress, but obviously perhaps government government officials at this point just said, "Shh, just let uh, get us some things settled here, and then we'll, you know, you can chat." Diana, your thoughts? I honestly, I don't really have any. I don't know enough about this story to really weigh in on this on the roundtable, so I'm gonna pass it on. But uh, I mean, there's so much going on on the local level. I think it's just been overshadowed a little bit. Good point. Uh, maybe they're also waiting for a book deal. Will? <laughs> but, yeah, a book deal is possible. No, my first thought was just that they're taking time to decompress. They're resting. They've been through a heck of an experience. And they're back and they're communicating with their families. And you know what? In the old days, people did get shoved in the spotlight a lot of the time to their detriment. And I figured in this case, that's what's happening. Everyone's being careful. But as the professor probably said, there's probably some government saying, hey, hey, shh, about it as well. All right, let's move on. Poll question of the day. Winter tires, do you have yours on yet? 46% of you are saying yes. Uh, my daughter was up in Kitchener-Waterloo this weekend, sent me a uh, picture. They got blasted with snow. They had uh, quite a bit of wet snow that stayed on the ground on Saturday night. Uh, nothing here that's staying, obviously. Uh, winter tires on yet, Teddy? On the family truckster? Nope. I uh, don't have uh, winter tires, actually, to be frank. There you oh, go. Boy. All right. And, and, and I know I know that that's probably a loss somewhere. Here's the way I feel about this. Does your insurance this. company know? Yeah, well, 30 <laughs> days from now I will be semi-retired. So, ergo, if there's a major snowstorm, I ain't going anywhere. Ain't going so, I'm going to park my <laughs> buggy right on the street and I'll <laughs> shovel her out and go. So, <laughs> see, the studio one guy, you know one one my, guy uh, applauds me for my, my honesty. My dad used to say that. He said, I'm not going out in the winter, See? so what the heck? I don't need to. <laughs> See? <laughs> See? But what if you run out of supplies, Ted? Like, no, that like doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. He's uh, going to um, snowshoe. You know, <laughs> I, no, I, you know, by, I, I by checked Diana's my week. Reac- by like, Diana's reaction, I thought it was, it was like when I said on Friday I'd gone into a store without a mask on by mistake. It was like, <gasps> Ted, no snow tires. Nope. Nope. I, you know, I and I check my uh, my weekly flyers in advance, and I check the weather in advance, so I'm prepared if there's something coming. But I'm just not getting snow tires because, quite frankly, for me, it's a waste of money. This is my own opinion. This is for me only. I'm not telling you people not to do it. Just me, because in uh, 30 yeah. days, in 30 days, it doesn't matter. <laughs> In 30 days, uh, Ted's packing up the car and going to Florida. That's where he's gone. He's out of Dodge, that's for sure. Uh, Will, do you have the snow tires on yet? 
Well, no, but it, I, it's already booked so that they will be on start of oh, December. Got to book ahead so anyone yes. else, don't dilly-dally. Get it done. My wife booked ahead. She rubbed that in. Uh, Diana, what about you? I don't have them on yet, but I do get them on earlier than many people. And I think uh, I'm coming up for an oil change soon. So I think that when I do that, I'm going to do the whole thing, the whole shebang, get the winter tires on there as well. So they're really good at my dealerships. So I feel like and you know, regarding regarding Ted and and you know, waste of money and such. Here's one way to look at it too, Ted, is that if you have tires on your car all year round, yep, uh, they will wear out. If you take a, a tire and you have it on for six months, and then you put another one on for six months, then your tires last longer anyway because you've got two sets of them. Oh, okay. Well, you're you're, <laughs> you're trying to get that. No, I'm I'm no, not changing because of what what I do plan is hopefully to get a new car next year. Oh, at see, that that's point, very nice. At that oh, point, at that point, getting? I will get the snows. But right now, uh, you know, she's she's rusted away. Why bother? She's basically the cube at this point. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So Ted's waiting for the new Bronco. That's what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, do you rake your leaves or do you let nature take its course? I think I was the only one this weekend who never got around to raking the leaves yet, and my neighbors had, and you know what? I'm that guy now. So do you rake your leaves, or do you let nature take its course, Ted? I don't know if I want to ask you this after the snow tires. <laughs> we used to rake our leaves. I did it all the time faithfully, and then I finally got, as I get older, and I'm, I can't do this, my back hurts, uh, we pay a kid down the street to do it. So, Oh, there you go. So that's that's just nice. Out. And <laughs> in the past, though, in the, in the past, when it was, you know, dark, I kind of... Whip them out into the street, some of them, but uh, oh, dear. because we we live in an area where there are a lot of Manitoba maple trees. I mean, uh, a lot, yeah, and the leaves yeah. are constantly falling. So you know, at some point, I'll have to do it. I understand, though, you know that the leaves do make good mulch, so yep. there is that. I uh, and you? I do love raking my leaves. I'm weird like that. I do. Um, I like raking them, and I do leave them down in my flower beds, to kind of insulate over the winter. Um, but uh, I haven't gotten around to it yet. We have a huge tree on our front property that, uh, like, I mean, our, our property is just covered. Uh, we're going to yeah. get around to it soon, though. we got to clean those leaves because then they get in the, the, the sewers, and it's just a mess. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Uh, Will, do you, now, do you use a rake or a leaf blower? Because, you know, my uh, dad gave me his old leaf blower, and man, that's We great. have a leaf blower things. and oh, rakes. Uh, there you go. Yeah. That's it. I, All right. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm a stickler for, I stick to the rake. If I'm doing the raking, I stick to the rake as long as possible. Uh, I don't actually own a leaf blower, and I've, I've never felt the need to use one yet, although some circumstances I wish I did. The leaf blowers so, are great for the eaves troughs. Because we Ooh, have the tree that go, go yeah. yeah. Well, that's the husband. The husband does that. He gets up on the ladder and he does the the thing. But you know, the tr- the leaves troughs are full of leaves because of our tree. It just it's, it hangs right over our house. So, so te- yeah, I hear yeah. you. So Ted didn't want to rake the leaves and make some sore yet. He went out for a run. <laughs> well, I'm I'm taking care of my health. There's a difference here. <laughs> Different muscles. <laughs> See, Different muscles. Ra- Raking isn't good for his mental health. It makes him cranky. It really does. A lot better. <laughs> Bloody uh, That and snow tires, apparently. That's it. Whoa, that's it. Yes. Uh-oh. 30 oh days, goodness. gang. Bring it in. 30 days, and then that's oh, all you got. Wow. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, lots of discussion around the COP26 
in Scotland over the last couple of weeks and um, certainly getting a lot of coverage and certainly a lot of attention. And then as we got towards the end of uh, the summit, uh, the, you know, people were divided on uh, whether there was any really real significant contributions being made and whether we were moving the discussion forward or not. Uh, one big story that did come out of this at the very end um, was the U.S. and China agreed to talk about their coal consumption. What that means in the future moving forward, who knows? Uh, but at least, and you know, at least uh, they're moving in the right direction. And we've talked about this several times with guests in the past uh, that rather than, you know, it seems that everybody agrees that, that there's a situation with climate change, but how we go about addressing it is where there is uh, a lot of confusion and divisiveness. Uh, and at the end of the day, we've all got to get rowing in the same direction. And I remember talking to uh, experts about why not just focus on one area that we can all uh, make a dent on, uh, whether it be the biggest polluter such as coal, uh, as opposed to all of these different directions, uh, all these different uh, uh, thoughts and, and, and ideas going in different directions. We don't seem to be rowing in the same direction uh, with any of this. And, and how successful successful was this in the end let's bring in dr carrie bowman bioethicist with the university of toronto and with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well i'm very well indeed thank you so carrie there was a lot of chatter uh this certainly made the news a lot uh got a lot of attention and then as we got towards the 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 back side of the cop 26 uh, there seemed to be a lot of people disappointed was there anything accomplished was this a success in any way well you know i i i I think there was to some extent, you know, if you roll it back just a couple of years, there's no way the entire world would be focused on one, you know, it's not really, as you said in your intro, I mean, there's multiple goals and that's the challenge, but, but on environment per se, and, you know, the acknowledgement of the problem, and I, I realize there's a lot more to dealing with a problem than just acknowledging it, that really made progress. You know, what we really need to see, however, is will they actually do what they say they're going to do? And and look, some of it is really watered down. Um, like coal is a great concern. And I appreciate the point you make in your intro. It, you know, this is such a multifaceted problem that it's very complex to be, be uh, approaching something with so many moving parts. And maybe we should start with one thing at a time. I would agree to that to a point if, if we were talking 15 or 20 years ago, but now the crisis is at our doorstep and, mm. and we really need to move forward. I do think if we really, really push our leadership to, to stick to what they said. And you know, when you look at Canada, I, I, I don't want to be too nasty, but boy, it, it's pretty well duplicitous. You know, we're, you know, our prime minister is showing leadership on all of this, but we really haven't met any of our goals so far at all. Um, so very worrisome in that way. So rather than uh, aiming for goals that we never seem to be able to accomplish, 
and, and as you said, a, a multifaceted problem. Is it too hard to focus on something that is the biggest polluter, that being coal? Um, would it not make more sense? And obviously some parts of the world can do it. Other parts, it's a lot more difficult uh, for them. But it, would it not make sense for us all to at least focus on that one issue to get us going as opposed to shooting off in all these different directions and really getting nothing done? It or might, and coal's a massive problem. But but again, even if we got on top of coal with subsidies and help to low-income countries, we still mm-hmm. have layers and layers of problems that we have not dealt with. Uh, coal, in my in my thoughts, is one of the big is one of the most big, you know, the greatest failures of all of this because that last-minute change in language uh, from India, and India's not doing nothing on the environment, by the way. They've done quite a bit. But but that last minute change that, you know, I'm forgetting the exact wording, but that really watered it down to we'll think about it or we'll try as opposed to we're actually going to do this uh, makes a big difference. But look, this is what our governments are doing. What are we all doing as well? And, you know, what are we holding our governments to? You, you can't, you know, the very nature of politics and short cycles of, of, of leadership is very problematic. I'm actually, you know, I'm working globally. I work in global health, and I'm seeing some amazing initiatives emerging in in Africa. In you know, my work is is all outside of Canada, uh, South America. So if the people, you know, take it from the bottom up, and the leaders take it from the top down, we can actually meet in the middle. But there's no way we can leave this in the hands of our leaders and our politicians. They just won't do it. Um, we have to hold them to it, and we have to do some work ourselves. Look, the multifaceted nature is tough. I think people individually, we all need to figure out what we can do, what we can support, and move forward. And it would be great to break this into bite-sized pieces, and I think we can to some extent. But I just, you know, 20 years ago, we probably could have. But at this point, we, we have to take every angle of this. Dr. Kerry Bowman with us, bioethicist with the University of Toronto, talking about the COP26 wrapping up, and are we in a different space this time around? Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're very welcome. Take care. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Uh, we have certainly seen prices of pretty much everything go up uh, as we are making our way through, uh, hopefully, towards the end of a global pandemic. Uh, we remember when everything came to a grinding halt. Remember the price of fuel was down below like a dollar a liter, uh, 90-something cents a liter. We see where that is now. Uh, price of lumber, for example, uh, you know, triple what it normally was at some point. So I guess, in a sense, it was only a matter of time that we saw things in the grocery store go up in price uh, or is it let's bring in dr sylvain charlebois professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the agri-food analytics lab at dalhousie university and with us now doctor thanks for the time i hope you're well yes i am how about you I'm doing well, thanks so much. I guess considering, Sylvain, where we are with uh, shortages of, of various items in the supply chain, was it was it just bound to hit the food industry? Um, I'm not sure we actually are experiencing any shortages of, of food items. Uh, they, they may be empty shelves here and there, but that's really more about assortment and uh and the fact that grocers are recalibrating their portfolios of brands really but we're not running out of anything really it's just 
course, supply chains are much slower, and, of course, they're more expensive. Moving things around right now is costing more, both on water and on land. Uh, labor is another issue. Labor is pushing prices higher. Uh, when you have low margins, like in, in the agri-food sector, you have to adjust prices. And, and, uh, and of course, the other uh, factor, uh, making everything more expensive, really, is... Um, our, our, our commo- the commodity market is just more expensive. Uh, so to feed livestock, to input costs in processing, everything is more expensive. Uh, if you talk to restaurant operators, they'll tell you everything has gone up. So many prices will go up eventually. On December 9th, we're actually releasing Canada's food price report with the University of Guelph, uh, Saskatchewan, and UBC. And uh, yeah. 2022 is not going to be uh, all that easy for uh, for families with less means. So uh, compare this year to past years, because we've always talked about rising prices. I mean, for whatever reason, whether it's weather, this, that, or the other, uh, this certainly is nothing new. Uh, but obviously, with a pandemic, you know, uh, we, it's the first time most of us have experienced uh, this sort of global pandemic. W- what is happening? You talked about the the shortage of labor, transportation costs, and such. Will this continue? Is this the new normal, or do you expect things to plane out a bit? Mm, I, I think we need to, you know, uh, adjust our expectations as consumers. Think, think, uh, things are going to be slow for a while. You see, restarting a global economy is not something we, we have done in the past, really. Mm-hmm. It's like steering a, a cruise ship with paddles. Mm. Essentially. You, well, you'll get to destination. You'll get to your destination, but it'll take longer. Uh, you, you see, in some parts of the world, things are going well, while others, uh, all of a sudden, they're hit by uh, higher numbers of, of, uh, of COVID cases. They have to implement new restrictions. I mean, Germany is one example right now. And so that's why global supply chains are much slower than they used to be and more costly than they used to be. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. It's going to last a while. And when I say a while, it's 8 to 12 months at the very least. Will this change the way we buy groceries? Will this change our habits? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So... If you're if you're an online shopper, you'll notice that it's costing you more to buy online. So if you're happy, uh, you don't mind, you'll continue. But if you want to save uh, some money, you'll probably show up at the grocery store. Secondly, what you buy will also change. Uh, if you uh, look at your grocery <coughs> bill, uh, animal proteins are way more expensive this year than last year, 13, 14, 15 percent. In some cases, like with beef, it's it's more than twenty percent. So if you're if you're a meat lover, it's great, but you may you're you're likely going to reduce the amount of meat you consume and and go for something else cheaper. And so that's something that we're expecting. People will actually go for private labels, house brands, much more so. They'll trade down as well in terms of quality to save a buck. No, and and frankly, I, I don't think people will go out as much. Uh, going out is more expensive, and if you want to save a mo- some money, uh, don't go out. That's basically one solution. You bring up a valid point, Sylvain. Uh, during this pandemic, we've all learned to love local, buy local, support local groceries, uh, retail, what have you, restaurants, hospitality. Uh, will rising prices curb that desire to shop local? If it's, if it's more expensive, probably. 
Uh, not all local is more expensive. Uh, some local products are are actually cheaper depending on what you look at, uh, and depending on the season, and depending if you're looking at produce, for example, it depends of you know the weather and and different things. So I, I wouldn't put an X on local, but if it's more expensive, yeah, probably. I'd say that people will reconsider for sure. Now, the majority of Canadians will do well, will do fine. However, the percentage we dedicate, the percentage of our budget we dedicate to food will likely increase over the next few years. Uh, the average Canadian was spending maybe 9.5% of his or her budget on food. That's probably going to go up, uh, maybe mm. to 10.5, 11, maybe in a few years from now. And that's going to force people to spend less on other things like, you know, vacations and yeah. that new sofa or that new TV. I mean, there's you're going to see people spend money a little bit differently. And shelter is the other one. I mean, it's costing more for people to get a roof over their heads, and that's forcing people to, again, change their budget. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Brian J. Karam is a political analyst for CNN and covers the White House and host of Just Ask the Question podcast and is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks so much. You know, uh, obviously, uh, we're not hearing a lot of uh, the the trials and tribulations of Donald Trump up here uh, as much as we used yeah. to. We, we remember during the day, uh, Steve Bannon early on in uh, the Trump presidency was a big part of all of this. Uh, and also uh, January 6th, the insurrection, uh, and then obviously a House committee to investigate all of this. Uh, he was subpoenaed. Uh, Steve Bannon was subpoenaed to, to uh, obviously appear. He did not. Uh, and then uh, surrendered today to federal authorities. So how significant is this or is it significant at all? Is this grandstanding? Is this a show? What is it? It is significant because it, it moved faster than some thought, and it showed that they're very serious, that the January 6th commission is serious, and uh, the fact that a, a prosecutor, that they were able to bring charges against him, it went before uh, a prosecutor, that does not bode well for all of those like, say, oh, I don't know, Mark Meadows or even Donald Trump, who want to avoid uh, a subpoena before Congress, they can be brought up on charges and uh, making an example of Steve Bannon is a perfect first step in doing it, and it uh, could mean that eventually we'll get to the bottom uh, of the story and find out exactly what happened on January 6th, who was behind it, and why it happened. Now, most of us already know that, but having it having it brought out into the open and in a court of law is huge. So what happens to Steve Bannon now? Well, I'd like to say he would be banished and, you know, to the seventh circle of hell and we'll never see him again but he'll go on trial and he'll uh they'll determine his guilt or innocence and then sentence him accordingly uh the guidelines according to the court so i believe it's what a year 18 months something like that at the most that he could spend behind bars um don't quote me on that but i think that's what it is and that and so uh that's that's where he'll eventually end up um which is not a place you know, somebody like him would uh, fare well. 
<laughs> yeah. Does uh, what about the movement? Does this just add fuel to the fire? Does this fuel the movement? Everything. Uh, you mean the Bannon Trumplican movement? Yeah. Yeah. Everything fuels that movement. The sun rising in the east fuels that movement. I mean, these are crazy <laughs> people who take anything and it'll fuel the movement. I mean, you're you're talking about people who are behind Donald Trump, who, you know, Trump says he takes credit for the vaccine, and they credit him for taking, you know, for, for developing the vaccine, but they won't take it because they say it's a plot. So, I mean, Jesus, everything, everything, everything to them is fuel. If you're crazy, the air is fuel. So what would Donald Trump's reaction be to what happened to Steve Bannon today? Publicly, I don't think he'll say much. Privately, I think he's... Uh, circling the wagons and i think he's worried about what's going to happen to him and i think he has been for a while and there's been talk that uh cyrus vance in new york the district attorney there could uh uh bring charges against trump and there's talk of him having charges filed against him in georgia so we're going to have to wait and see that's it's uh, i don't think that this bodes well for donald trump and hopefully it's the beginning of the end of this narcissistic, divisive uh, rage in U.S. politics. How damaging can Steve Bannon's testimony be to uh, Trump? And, I mean, is he is he liable to throw him under the bus? That is an excellent question. And there are those who believe that that's exactly what Bannon will do and that Bannon will save his own hide um, with a chance to bury the Donald. And there are others who believe that Bannon doesn't have much to bury the Donald with. Remember, that's what they thought about Michael Cohen, that he knew where all the, uh, you know, Trump's former fixer, who knew where all the bodies were buried. As it turns out, Donald Trump is very good at compartmentalizing and not telling everybody what's going on in his life. So those closest to him don't even know what's going on. If Jared or Ivanka or, or Melania fell, and then that might be a different story. But we'll wait and see. Bannon is a sycophant for Trump, but I don't know that he's going to, um, you know, go down for Trump. But then again, I don't know what he has that could get Trump. So how that plays out in court will be of interest to everyone. Uh, are we any closer to all of this fiasco coming to an end? Will we actually know how this was planned? Will someone actually pay for what happened on January 6th? Again, excellent question. I think there have been a hun- hundreds of people who have already paid the price for their stupidity. But those who need to pay the price are those in Congress who uh, supported and uh, instigated this, those in the White House who supported and instigated it, those who organize this need to go down, and not not just the people at the bottom who did it, not the people at, in the medium level who helped organize their groups, but the people who got those people involved, and that's the president and, you know, members of Congress who, who you know, my God, we have a president who, who said that, you know, he wanted to hang as vice president. That That has to be payable somehow. What is, how is the Republican Party reacting to all of this? Uh, are they separating well, themselves from all of this? <laughs> well, those who are true Republicans have pretty much left the party. Those people that left are barrets on, you know, just ferrets on Benzedrine. I mean, hmm. that's all they are. They're just uh, lackeys to Trump, wired and 
you know, ready for rock and roll and, and, you know, shoot up methamphetamines and woohoo, let's go. So I don't, I, you know, I, I think that what's ever left of the Republican Party, real Republicans have pretty much left. And those that are left will embrace whatever the Donald does or DeSantis who are, or whoever the crazy uh, moron in charge is in the moment. Uh, obviously, uh, Joe Biden not doing well in uh, popular opinion polls at this time. Um, what is the future? What is the future of the opposition there? Well, I, today we, we stood out on the South Lawn, and I, I watched uh, the President of the United States sign a bipartisan bill with 900 people in attendance. It's the largest gathering on the South Lawn I've seen in a decade easily. And there were Republicans who came out for it and Democrats who came out for it. He, With that particular piece of legislation, an infrastructure bill, something that used to be very easily passed in Congress by both Republicans and Democrats, they had to fight to get it, but they got it, uh, it, they got it done, and they got it done in a bipartisan manner. It is Biden's attempt and wish and hope that that's the future, that we can work together on big issues. I mean, who doesn't want clean water, nice roads, you know, and, and bridges and, in, you know, and, and uh, the Internet for their kids? I mean, the thing was is there was a time when the United States was one of the top countries, you know, when it came to infrastructure, number one, after the, you know, World War II, and now it's number 13. So, yeah, that, that's what he hopes the future is. Donald Trump and, and uh, meanwhile, and his group sent out a thing today cursing the Democrats and the Republicans who work together because they think that, you know, it's his way or the highway. It's nice to see that, that there are people beginning to see that working together, united we stand, divided we fall. It's beginning. It's nice to see that as a beginning. Hopefully that's a future, and the divisive nature of Donald Trump is the past. Covering the White House, Brian J. Karam has been with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter and host of Just Ask the Question podcast. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Always good to talk to you. Uh, the Grey Cup, halftime show. So at least we'll get some Hamilton uh, representation there, uh, you know, at least in some form or another. Are they going to make it all the way? I'm not sure. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am very well. How are you? I'm doing well. When we On Friday, we were throwing this around the round table, and Ted was the only one that came out and said, I don't think this is going to be a walk in the park. And then, of course, we know what happened uh, with Friday night's game. Uh, give, us, give us your thoughts on this team and what we can expect from them in the next couple of weeks. Wow, who knows? Uh, you know, this is, um, you would have thought that with that game on Friday, with all that was involved and with them hosting the Grey Cup and the win on Friday would have given them home field advantage. At, you yeah. know, uh, first, first overall, a bye to get there, then home field. So much on the line. With the Grey Cup in your town, you would have thought this would have been the greatest performance in the history of Ticat football. And, uh, not to put too, um, find a point on this but they sucked they were horrible and and you look at this then and you go well all right so what would be the reason that suddenly we would think that they're now going to go on this unbelievable run which they could 
which they could. This is the mm-hmm. totally confounding part about it. They've had great moments. Um, now, the bigger problem they've got right now is they don't get the bye in the first game. They might get home field advantage in this in the East semi if so Montreal plays Ottawa. That's almost a guaranteed win. I mean, Ottawa stinks. Yeah. And Hamilton has to play Saskatchewan. That's not an easy win. No. So uh, Montreal wins and Hamilton loses. Not only does Hamilton not have the bye in the first round, but they got to go to Montreal for the first round game. They just keep making it harder on themselves. I, and I, more, I obviously, uh, a lot of people thought when uh, this game came around next week that it, it wouldn't even really matter. And now it's everything, it seems. Well, if they had won on Friday, it wouldn't have really mattered. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, as I say, it's just, look, they can hold a Grey Cup in Hamilton, and it can. It, it's already, you know, we got some of the details today. It's going to be whittled back a bit. We're going to talk to Matt Ashenek, the president of the team, uh, at 6.15 today on my show about what is going on with the Grey Cup Festival. They can hold a Grey Cup, and they can hold a successful Grey Cup, even if the Ticats aren't in it. Yeah. But my goodness, does it ever make it better if the home team is part of this yeah. thing? Yeah. Just for not even for the game, like the game will go off fine. Our Kells will be great. The game will yep. probably be great. Everything will be great. It's all the stuff leading up. If the home team is in it, there's just a buzz. There's there's just yep. so much more yep. excitement. And how does this thing go? If Grey Cup week is the Toronto Argonauts playing <laughs> for the Grey Cup in hand, I mean it just yeah yeah you know it's salt it, in the it, wound. It, and and think yeah. of this, you know, uh, that's this year, and then it's coming back in 2023. Uh, we you got to hope to at least be in one and at least win one. Uh, what happens if we go two and three years and come out the other end without an appearance? Well, so I, I like going into this season, I had said it several times. I thought, and I still do think, if you look purely at the talent, the Tie Cats are the best team in the East. Like, I, I don't, I don't. I don't see a team in the East that the Ticats should not be beating. I think they have the talent to do this. Um, so who knows? Who knows? But then again, now, you know, two years down the road, um, who knows what your situation is. But, yes, you're starting to get into – I'm not going to say you're in the Maple Leaf territory yet because you're not because the Ticats <laughs> won a game. No, because the Ticats won one in 99, so they've got yeah. a 22-year window on the Leafs. But the CFL is an awful lot smaller league than the NHL. And, you know, it, it's been it's been over 20 years now that the Ticats haven't won a Grey Cup. And it's nine-team league. And you've had really good teams. And you've yeah. had chances. You know, there comes a point when you got to win one. you got to figure it out. you got to win one. And it's, doing it at home is the best way to do it. It's certainly going to be a barn burner on Saturday now. Well, look, it, I would have said that... This this team in a must win game would look great. Well, they clearly didn't on Friday. So who again? You ask the question about you know surprise. I, I don't know what to expect from them when they play Saskatchewan. I would think they would be the most motivated team again in the history of football. But I would have thought that on Friday they could be great. They could win by thirty points on Saturday, and it wouldn't shock me. Or they could lose by thirty, and it wouldn't shock me. I don't know them. <laughs> yeah, really. All right, who's on the show tonight, Scott? Uh, we are going to be talking about the Great Cup Week. The uh, announcement today of uh, the stuff that you can do came out today. And, you know, I'll say this. Um, at the 2019 Canadian Open, the golf tournament in Hamilton, mm-hmm. they went through 70,000 cans of beer. 
I'm thinking that there is a chance that number could be eclipsed during the three or four days of Grey Cup week here. Um, Because the the thing has not been here for a long time. And I got to figure that even if people aren't all that into football, uh, I know there are some people in Hamilton who are into drinking. And so plenty of opportunities will be available to do that. We're going to talk with, um, as I say, Matt Affinac, president and CEO of the team, about the festival information that was just released and where you can do your drinking or otherwise. What about ticket sales? There are still some tickets available which I was a little surprised by, but he says, no, no worries. We, we will sell out. That's not going to be an issue. We'll talk to him about that as well. But, yeah, it's, it's getting close to a sell. This is, thankfully, Scott, I know you got to run. Thankfully, this is not looking like 1996 where they yeah. had two-for-one tickets at Tim Hortons the day of the game. That, that's well, you know, no extra, no extra seating brought in for this, so uh, you know there will be in two years, that's for sure. Uh, Scott Radley's with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and you can read him there and listen right after the news tonight. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will and Ted and Diana for contributing. Now it's your turn. As always, we leave it to you, the CHML listener, to have the last word. You know, I went to go rake the leaves the other day, and it was great. Before I could put them into the bag, Mother Nature just came along and raked them into the next yard over. Thanks, Mother Nature. That's not allowed. That's not allowed.